I was crushed, honestly. And I walk away from the house kind of shaking, but I wasn't ready to give up. So I take out my phone and I do what I do best. And I internet stalk the shit out of this guy, but deeper and harder than last time. And then I see it, my way in. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today on Schmaltzy, Julian Shapiro Barnum. Julian is the creator and host of the viral online show, Recess Therapy. He was honored as one of Forbes 30 Under 30 and recently won his first Webby Award. First, Julian will share a funny and touching personal story that we recorded live in Brooklyn. Then we'll chat about his five parents, puppetry, the corn kid, and so much more. Here's Julian. So I was raised in Brooklyn by five debatably six gay parents. And the best thing about them is that I'm incredibly close with all of them. And I feel lucky enough to call them all my good friends. Now, that wasn't so much the case when I was a kid. When I was about 12 or 13, they embarrassed me to no end. I assume you all were embarrassed of your two parents. Try five. (laughs) Four of them are lawyers. Most of my anxiety and embarrassment fell on my dad, Lauren Sklamberg, who is a Grammy Award-winning klezmer musician. (laughs) Whoa! In the band The Klezmatics? (laughs) So cool. Not when I was 12. (laughs) I would bring friends over, and from the elevator, I could hear him belting in his gorgeous countertenor voice prayers, songs about me and what I was like when I was a baby... I would go to see his shows and he'd come out with my friends in these extravagant gowns. He would then post pictures on Facebook and he would tag me so the pictures would then show up on my feed, which my friends would then see. And just all of it made me feel very bad and anxious. (laughs) And it made me separate from his artistry. Now, ironically, this time in my life also coincided with my puppetry phase. Yeah, I was 13 years old, had hair to here, wore my headgear to school at times, and was absolutely in love with the Muppets. After I watched the documentary Being Elmo, I fell in love with the craft. I had my own puppet studio in my basement. I made all my own puppets. There were Schwerken Schwerken, Grandpa Willard, Sylvia High Pitchdrigan, Desmond, Desmond the Yeti. <laughs> and... I had just moved to Philadelphia and was struggling to connect with people in my class, so I went in the basement and I made all my own friends. And if that sounds lonely, it's because it very much was. But that all changed one day when I made a new best friend named Jack. He just didn't know I existed yet. Jack was the puppeteer behind the famous Pico ads. And if any of y'all are from Philadelphia, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and there were these ads, and pretty much like the fridge was like this monster, and it was like eating up all the electricity, and like, oh my God, it's so, so fucking cool. But yeah, I knew that this guy was going to be my best friend. I knew he would understand me. I knew he would teach me his ways. And so one night, I internet stalked him. And I found everything out about him. And he was just as cool as I imagined. He made the puppets for the music video for Radioactive by Imagine Dragons. 
he also worked with John Hamm one time. And maybe the coolest thing about him was that he lived not four blocks from my dad's house in Brooklyn. And I decided then and there I was going to show up at his house and he was going to adopt me. <laughs> so the next day I called my dad's on the phone and I went, guys, boys weekend. Guys, we should freaking hang, toss them back. I didn't want to hang out with them. I wanted to go to Jack's house. But we made a plan, and I packed all of my puppets into a suitcase, duffel bag, and backpack. <laughs> and I put on my nicest graphic tee, and <laughs> I got on a Greyhound bus to New York. While on the bus, I hatched my plan. I would show up at Jack's house on Sunday after having my boys weekend. And I was going to show up to his house. I was going to ring the doorbell, and I was going to go, hey... <laughs> My name is Julian Shapiro Barnum. I am a young puppeteer, and you're going to want to see what I've got going on. <laughs> so I have some weekend time with my dads, and it's fantastic. And then it's Sunday morning, and it's showtime. And I wake up with electricity coursing through my veins. And I pack my suitcase, my duffel bag, and backpack. I put on the shirt, and it's like a chubby tiger on a boat eating pie, and it's like life of pie. <laughs> it was such a good shirt! <laughs> and I walk two blocks to the left and two blocks to the right, and I'm here. I am in front of Jack's house. There's nothing in my way. I am just moments away from meeting my best friend, and I feel good. <laughs> I feel solid. And with unwavering 13-year-old confidence, I walk up to his front door, and I push my finger through the doorbell, and it rings, and I hear footsteps, and he opens the door, and he's handsome, and he looks like a Simpson character, and I can see the puppets hanging on the wall behind him, and I go, hello, my name is Julian Sprobarn, and he stops and he goes, sorry, whatever your project you're working on, I really wish you the best of luck, but this is unfortunately kind of a bad time. We're moving to San Francisco tomorrow, but yeah, good luck. And then he shuts the door in my face. That's my best friend. <laughs> I'm going to San Francisco tomorrow? When are we going to bool? Like, when are we going to hang out? <laughs> I was crushed, honestly. And I walk away from the house kind of shaking, but I wasn't ready to give up. So I take out my phone, and I do what I do best, and I internet stalk the shit out of this guy, but deeper and harder than last time. And I go on his Facebook, and I go four or five years back, and I'm looking, I'm looking, and then I see it my way in. I couldn't believe how smart I was. And I go back to the door, and I ring the doorbell, and he comes out, and he goes, look, kid, and I say, listen up, guy. <laughs> My name is Julian Shapiro Barnum. I am a young puppeteer, and yeah, you're going to want to see what I got going on, and I couldn't believe I was about to say this. <laughs> My dad is Lawrence Glamberg from the Klezmatics. <laughs> Yeah, this was my biggest moment of nepotism in my life. And he is stunned. It turned out that Jack was a Klezmatics super fan. And it reverberates through his body. And he goes, what? And I go, yeah. And then here's the crazy part. I say, do you want to meet him? And he goes, yeah. And I say, well, then you should come to my house right now. And he goes, okay. And then he goes, honey, I'm going to this kid's house. And then he walks to my house. He walks to my house, and I tell him all about my puppets, and I say, wait here. I go upstairs, and I open the door, and my dad, Lauren, is standing in the kitchen, cooking up his classic lentil soup. 
minding his business. My other dad's cleaning some records. And I go, guys, guess who's here? <laughs> Play it cool. <laughs> All right. And they're really cool about it, actually. And they let him upstairs. And Jack walks in and he goes, wow, wow. You're a And he launches into a absolute gush fest to my dad, who is loving it. And my dad goes, one, one second, do you want to stay for dinner? And he sits him down at the table and he ladles us each a bowl of his famous lentil soup, puts it in front of us. And as we eat, Jack gushes and tells my dad just how much his music has meant to him throughout his whole life through his whole career, how it has inspired him, how it has caused him to do the work that he's done, how it's made him feel taken care of in moments when he's felt like he hasn't had anybody. And I was sitting there like, wait, wait, wait. This guy that I really look up to, that I am endlessly inspired by, is inspired by my dad? <laughs> That's kind of cool. <laughs> And we had dinner, and I listened, and it sunk in. And then Jack gave me an hour-long puppetry lesson. And we then had a year-long relationship where he taught me his ways. We have dinner together every once in a while. He still comes over when he's in town. And I think because of that experience, I gained a true appreciation and love for my dad's music. And you can follow him on Spotify and SoundCloud at Lawrence Lamberg. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for hearing it and having me tell it. It was pretty incredible. Can I just say some things? Can I color in the story a little bit? Of course. So that's experience of going to this guy's house and begging for a puppetry lesson was the first event many presumptuous, slightly invasive moves I did to advance my career in the puppetry space. Right after that, I then showed up at the puppet kitchen. It was like a really cool puppet studio. And I just walked in and I said, can you teach me? And then they did. And then I cold called Sesame Street. I said, can I come to Sesame Street? And they're like, let me transfer you. And eventually somebody said yes. And then Jack from the story. Let's get one thing clear. Yeah, yeah. Jack is the name that you used for him in the story. His name is Zach Buckman. Zach actually helped me get to Sesame Street. I visited, I was like in the eighth grade. I had this insane day just on set of Sesame Street. And then maybe four months ago, I got invited personally to go to the Sesame Workshop. And that loop was closed. It was very beautiful. Wow. Yeah. So you have a lot of puppet stories. There's many. I was very into puppetry for a while. I moved on from it because it was a very solitary, lonely activity, especially when you're in high school and like in middle school and no one else does it. But now that I'm getting older, it's kind of cool again. Puppets are back. Puppets are back. You know, it's unique. And everyone wants to know. Your story actually sparked a very personal memory mm. for me because for a few years I went to this school in Brooklyn. And we actually had our own puppetry department. What school? 
St. Anne's. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I know about their puppetry department. Looking back, it kind of seemed like so normal mm-hmm. to like go into this studio and mm-hmm. build puppets. And then we would have like a giant puppet parade. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. I remember being jealous of that program. It was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. When you open your story by saying you had five parents, I was like, okay, wow, I, I hadn't really heard of that before. So I had two moms and they wanted to have a kid. They asked their friend, my dad, to be the sperm donor. He had a partner, my other dad, his husband. Now, my mom's had me and my brother and sister. They split up. They met other women. All six of them raised me when I was a kid. One of them kind of branched off. There was like a little breakup situation. And now there's five parents. At least since I was 10, there have been five main parents. I think five out of six that are still friendly and in your life are amazing. We're all friendly. It's (laughs) just a debate about whether (laughs) the sixth one is a full parent or not, or just was a parental figure. But that's neither here nor there. I had a lot of parents growing up, and it was really fun. And from birth to 11, I would move around three houses every week that weren't that far from each other. So it was just like a very chaotic kind of 10 years. And then I moved to Philly and it it slowed down a little bit. So was there one house that was like the cool house? They all had different hardships and joys. (laughs) That's so diplomatic. (laughs) My birth mom, Nicole's house, we didn't have television, but most of my stuff was there. My mom, La, had a Nintendo Wii. And then my dad's house had something else fun. There was something fun at each house. Yeah. It seemed like from your story, you kind of grew up with a lot of creativity. Yeah. You know, we'd go to a lot of theater. We'd go to improv shows. We'd do a lot of fun, silly stuff. A lot of outside, a lot of zoo, a lot of botanic garden. They were very encouraging of my creativity, which I appreciate. Yeah. I'm always so grateful for being raised here and for all the things that my parents exposed me to. Yeah. I think it was culture shocky when I moved to Philly because growing up in Brooklyn is like a very all-encompassing experience because there's so much going on. There's so many people. And I was in the fifth grade taking the train by myself and like all this stuff. And then I moved to Philly and it was like very suburby and kind of not my vibe. But I'm glad that I left New York for a good amount of time because I think it made me appreciate it. Tell me a little bit more about that. What prompted the move? And so it was like full suburbia? No, my school was. I moved to Mount Airy, which is within the Philadelphia limits, but is definitely more of like a nature space. But we weren't too far from the city. My mom got a job being a professor at Penn. She's been a professor for like 10 years, and now she's the first woman to ever be the dean Whoa. at Penn Law. So That's she so just, cool. She just got that job. Mazel so tov to her. Yeah, so she'll be there for another 10 years. <laughs> but yeah. I love Philadelphia. I don't think I appreciated it either until I've gone back now. But yeah, there was a lot of very wealthy, I mean, (laughs) this is funny, you know, the mainline Jew. Sure. Are you familiar with that? I am familiar. When I went to school in Pennsylvania was kind of where I was exposed to the mainline Jews. It's intense. Yeah, I experienced it firsthand. And look, let me try to explain it. I don't want to say anything bad, but like I went to a Quaker middle school and high school called Friend Central, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. And this school that was like 75% Jewish kids, very Jewish body of students. And most of them were this kind of mainline Jewish vibe, which is more of a way one carries themselves than any action. But it's a poise mm-hmm. and an influence that was very prominent 
there was a lot of funding put into the school from them. And so there was a lot of like control over stuff, which was very interesting. And nothing bad to say, but it was a little weird. Not to get too deep into that, but that's fascinating to me because I feel like no one has more confidence that's low key than a well-adjusted New York kid. I know. So to have a different type of, you know, confidence or way of carrying yourself being from, Mm -hmm. you know, that area is pretty interesting to me. It was very interesting. I think it made me feel very, you know, self-conscious because what once was cool, which was like quirky and weird, was now kind of more like social politics cool. I want to bring something back from your story, which is your like determination and essentially what I would call chutzpah Mm -hmm. to like keep trying with Zach. Was that something you think that you got from your parents, from being in New York, from moving around? Like you seemed very, very determined. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of kids would have maybe given up. Yeah, I talk about this a little bit whenever I talk about the thought behind recess therapy is that my parents really didn't ever speak to me like I was a little kid. It was a lot of like, you're an adult too, but small. And I know a little bit more, but we're figuring it out together. It was like this kind of horizontal parenting style that I think made me a little bit overconfident, especially when I was like 10, 11, 12, 13. I think I had a lot of chutzpah. If your story says anything (laughs) about you, yes. Which I don't think I've ever... Lost, but I think I've maybe learned how to use and I don't regret doing anything, but I was very like, I'm going to get what I want no matter what mentality. My parents were really encouraging and respectful of me. And I think that allowed me to feel empowered to do kind of crazy, crazy things. Well, I think probably for a parent, that's one of the nicest things they could ever hear. Staying on your parents for Mm -hmm. one second and all the houses, which house had the better food? Like, Mm -hmm. what were the holidays like? So, My mom was raised Catholic, and then my other mom, Sophia, is Jewish, and my other mom, Lauren, is Jewish, and then both my dads are Jewish. So a lot of Jewish parents. Ah, I'm scared. I know, a lot of them. (laughs) And then, you know, I have several uh, bubbies and grandparents and stuff. And none of them are particularly religious, but they all are very culturally Jewish. So, like, it would be a lot of nothing and then really elaborate holiday experiences where we do a huge Rosh Hashanah, Passover, Hanukkah thing. Who would host those mostly? My grandma Flo Flo, Florence. Florence Shapiro. Yeah, she is the guiding light for my family's Judaism. And my dad, Lauren, from the story, who is a Jewish archivist, he keeps track of documents and I think specifically music and a klezmer musician Mm -hmm. and a chef. Maybe not a chef, but a cook. And he was always leading the kind of food front. My mom, Nicole, is an Italian cook. But my dad was a very recipe-based cooker. And my mom was vibes-based. I cook like my mom. Like, I refuse to look at a recipe. I don't really care. Sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it's really good, and I don't ever make it again because I don't know how I did it. But All my parents are amazing cooks, except for my dad, Michael, who famously can make cereal and grilled cheese. And he's an adult man, and that's okay. (laughs) Okay. Those are two staples. Wait, so is Grandma Flo's, like, cooking style simpatico with, like, Lauren's? And, like, did they vibe? They love each other. She's not the most mobile, so she hasn't been cooking, per se, for a while. But she makes my dad do everything. Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she makes him 
like sing and cook and she makes him go all out but he's a professional singer and stuff and he you know on the holidays we get like accordion stuff and like all this great soup he's like an entertainer truly he's the chef for the night and he just listens to what she says and like does it i don't think he like would do that by choice but it's not that often and i think it means a lot to her okay got it well you know we have to talk about recess therapy and of course the corn kid. I was literally obsessed with him. I couldn't stop sending it to people. It was fun. It was a real crazy moment. It was a real crazy moment. And I can't believe it's almost been a year since that happened. Yeah. Time flies. I want to really understand how recess therapy came to be, like Mm -hmm. the motivation. I did some reading about it saying that it was something that really started during the pandemic. Yeah. The short of it is that my senior year was online and I was very bored and was making a lot of crazy videos and in a kind of lazy way was turning those videos slowly into my senior project. What was the basis of the videos? Like, was that, It was, was like, like nonsense. Usually at BU, your senior year, if you're an acting major, you do this like one person-ish show that's like a collection of monologues and scenes from work that's supposed to say some nonsense about who you are. I was, I guess, initially excited to do that when I came into the school. But by senior year and with the pandemic happening, I was really tired of doing other people's work. You know, BU's acting program was a little bit stiff. And then I was trying to see if I could pass my writing off as someone else's. I was like inside in front of my computer and I was like, this is from Caribou City. And then I'd see if anybody (laughs) would question it. But anyway, so my thesis, which was supposed to be all these other people's works, just turned into me doing sketches and funny interviews. And none of this would have happened if I was made to follow the rules. So I'm very lucky that I got to break all that. But one of the things was you, you have to do a monologue as a historical figure. And I was like, what if I just talked to kids? I went to the playground with Charlotte, who I still make the show with. And we spoke to like, seven kids for like an hour and it was really cathartic and it was really special and I asked them how they were staying happy during the pandemic and there was clearly something very magical there and I didn't think anything of it honestly and then it it took a little bit for me to eventually start posting the videos and them to start finding an audience and stuff and then how did it gain traction did you present that as part of your senior thesis yeah it was just kind of in there it was like at the end And then I started working with this production company that gave me a little budget, gave me an editor, and then, like, helped boost it. They have all these other Instagram pages. Early on, they would be like, check out this new show. And they would, like, advertise it. And then eventually it found its own audience and started gaining traction. And then, you know, over two years later, it's become my full-time job and this whole fun thing that's opened up a lot of other doors. And the corn moment was definitely, you know, we definitely had a following before that. And I appreciate those who watched before because we already had like 2 million followers when the corn thing happened, which is not nothing. That's amazing. And so how do you like approach the children and like mm-hmm. families? Yeah. I say like, hey, what's up? I'm Julian. <laughs> We're interviewing kids for a show called Recess Therapy. Can we talk to this little friend for a minute about, you know, cooking or something. I just kind of soft pitch them. And sometimes they're like, no way, get out of my face. Sometimes they're like, oh, I love you. Sometimes they're like, that sounds fine. Like they either hate it, love it, or are, you know, delighted and interested. And it's definitely been hard. I'm always shocked that I've been doing it for so long that like it is such a 
improvised and chance-based and social shoot every weekend. And sometimes I'm really not in the mood to do it, but I always do feel very energized by the kids. And if I'm not putting in 100%, I don't get anything out. And I've learned how to create the right situation internally for that to happen. I have to be really awake. I can't be tired. I have to have eaten. Like my body needs to be <laughs> running well for the interviews to work. You've got a prep. What I loved about the corn interview was how calm you were and how he gave the most emphatic, enthusiastic, mm -hmm. but also like incredibly thoughtful and smart answers. Yeah. Well, what I think is you're seeing in that is like, Sometimes I'm like, oh, we got something, and I don't want to distract them. Sometimes you tap into this vein of something really special, like a kid who's really interested in something, really excited about something, and I didn't want to throw him off. Like, he was zen. But in that moment, I was just trying to prompt him enough to keep him talking about corn. So you kind of knew in the moment that you had some sort of gold. I knew it was like a really good video. I had no idea. We posted an old video yesterday on TikTok that I think has like 40 million views right now. Like, I don't even think about it. TikTok specifically is so unpredictable and like out of control and crazy. Whereas like Instagram, I can kind of predict how people are going to respond. We didn't even post the Corn Kid video on TikTok. Somebody else posted it and it went viral. I can never predict what's going to happen with TikTok. I don't even have the app on my phone. I don't like it. I'll say that now. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. I won't do it. Save yourself a exactly. lot of time. I've yeah. been scrolling a lot lately, sadly. Yeah, it's hard. It sucks you in. It does. Were you prepared at all for like the viralness of the video? No, I was in Italy when I posted it. No, I was in Madrid. I was like at a little internet cafe and I was like, let me just put this thing on the internet. And then I got back onto Wi-Fi and my phone had exploded. And then I like still had two more weeks of my vacation. And I was like, should I come back? And then I came back. And it was a real roller coaster of like loving it and not because it was pretty stressful and I feel very responsible for all the kids that I work with and it felt like it had nothing to do with me at some point and it was so out of my control wow. it wasn't my video it was everyone's video and everyone was doing whatever they wanted with it and usually I'm very careful if somebody says something and I don't care it's you know free speech to a certain point but if somebody says something I don't like about a kid I will delete it I really try to manicure and make sure that the recess therapy page is a very positive supportive environment and then when it's like everyone's doing it it was a little bit anxiety inducing that there were so many voices speaking about something that i was involved in yeah i can't imagine what yeah. that would be because in one way you're just kind of over here by mm -hmm. yourself but in another way it's like millions and millions of people around yeah. the world are watching and having a reaction mm -hmm. to the same thing is the most watched video of the summer has billions of views. Wow. It's everywhere. It was the most viral video of the year. We just won the Webby for it. Yay! Yay! Um, but yeah, it was very strange. And then I'll say this. We were at the Drew Barrymore show, and I went to say hi to Tariq and his family, and like a security guard, like, step back, who are you? <laughs> and I was like, what? Uh-huh? And his mom was like, it's okay, he's with us. And I was like, I'm with you? What? Hi. I'm sorry. And they're like, sorry, we have to have security now. And that was a very weird moment where I was like, oh, I don't know. It's become its own thing. That is really, really funny. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a funny experience. Oh, okay. One or two last questions. Mm -hmm. One, 
So this summer, you're going to go out in the field, interview more kids. I know you're kind of Mm. an improv guy and kind of let the conversation go, but are there guidelines or topics you want to cover? Well, you know, the first year, maybe, (laughs) I had all these really interesting things I want to talk to kids about. And then the second year, I dug deeper. And now I'm going into year three and I have no idea what to talk about anymore. So I figured out every week, sometimes as I'm biking to the park. I can see that. I often find that when you're doing activities that are kind Mm -hmm. of like active but passive at Mm -hmm. the same time, that's when I get the best ideas. Whether it's like walking, Mm -hmm. in the shower, (laughs) like these things where you're kind of doing something, but you're not focused on trying to come up with an idea. You conjure it. Last week we did Mother's Day, which was fun. I've done it before, though. So it was kind of nice. And then... We went to the park and we were like really not feeling it. And then this mom brought her daughter and watch out for this interview. She was a tour de force, brilliant five-year-old talking all about like natural hair and like hair tips and growing it out and how beautiful she is. And it was just the most positive, sweetest clip. And I'm very excited. I think people are going to really like it. Yeah. Well, I just think that there's a lot of negativity out there and... We just need to, you know, have positivity and joy in our life. I agree. Thank you so much for doing that. No, it means so much to me. I feel like the internet is a very dark place, so I try to put some fun stuff on there. I think it's funny whenever people meet me and they're like, thank you. Like, well, you do so positive. And I'm like, oh, yeah, thank you so much. And then we talk, and I'm not like that all the time. But I wish I was. I wish I was positive. What you do speaks to that. and. You do it in your own low-key way. The kids are who are so positive, like, they are all so brilliant. They all bring so much of themselves and, like, their joy to these interviews. And I think that's what makes it so special is that I'm a facilitator. I think it's taken some work to figure out how to make them feel as free as possible to express themselves. But they make the show, and I get to work with so many fantastic families. So it's been a great experience. Well, thank yeah. you for sharing your incredible story. Oh, of course. I had so much fun. And for sharing so honestly here with me. Well, thank you. That was Julian Shapiro-Barnum. You can find Julian on Instagram at MSB. And while you're there... Give us a follow at Jewish Food Society. Looking for family recipes and stories from around the world? Check out jewishfoodsociety.org. And if you like what you heard, be a mensch and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Schmalti is produced by the Jewish Food Society in partnership with Pod People and made with love in NYC. Our executive producer is Nama Sheffi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Special thanks to the team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Madison Lesby, Robin Gelfenbein, Carter Wogan, and Michael Aquino. Julian's story was recorded live at Littlefield, and our interview was recorded at Good Studio in Brooklyn. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Oh.